0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues.
1: I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Neil Fraser, the Canadian president of Medtronic, which is a global medical devices company that produces, amongst other things, heart pacemakers. The company employs more than 90,000 people around the world, including more than 1,000 here in Canada. I'm grateful to speak with Neil about the world of medical technology, the role of public policy, and the future that he sees for Canada and Canadians when it comes to leveraging new technologies to improve health outcomes. Neil... Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Sean.
1: Let's start with a bit of a biographical sketch. You were previously at Alcan, where you were responsible for the introduction of aluminum in Canada, including curbside recycling programs. How does one go from aluminum to medical devices? What brought you to Medtronic?
2: Okay, well, you know, Alcan, uh, we don't hear as much about it anymore, but it was a great Canadian company. And, and a world leader in the production of aluminum. Um, they're now part of Rio Tinto globally, but, uh, uh you know, it was, a, it was a very interesting experience for me, uh, developing a new market specifically for aluminum cans. And the strategy was really through recycling and, uh, challenging some government regulations that didn't allow aluminum into the, uh, the packaging stream and the way we did that is we convinced them that it added tremendous value to recycling and and uh so that that kind of led into the approval of aluminum cans for me i found that uh while aluminum and aluminum cans are very interesting um, it wasn't uh you know it, it wasn't what i wanted to spend my future doing is selling aluminum um, and uh, I was very, very fortunate at that time. I met some people from Medtronic, and uh, I actually ended up meeting the founder of the company at one point. And uh, I had background, uh, you know, I come from a quite a medical family, uh, not my immediate family, but I had aunts and uncles who were doctors and nurses. Um, also, in my engineering training at UBC, I took some biomedical uh, engineering Uh, electives, which I really enjoyed. And so it sort of all came together for me. And this was a company who uh, was focused on alleviating pain, restoring health and extending life. Um, And uh, to me, that gave me purpose, which is what I was really looking for.
1: You mentioned the the company and its long history. In fact, Medtronic started nearly 75 years ago. Why don't you tell listeners a bit about the company, its key technologies and its presence and activities in Canada?
2: Well, it's an interesting story because actually the the first pacemaker uh, was developed in Canada at University of Toronto because they discovered that the heart responded to electrical impulses. But that pacemaker was a plug-in-the-wall device which could never work with patients' lifestyles. Um, and also um, it uh, obviously could fail if there was a power failure. And uh, so um, moving over to Minnesota... Uh, where our founder uh, worked as an electrical engineer repairing equipment at the university hospital. Um, during one such power failure, unfortunately, uh, a newborn baby uh, died because the, the pacemaker failed because of a power failure. And so um, the, the heart surgeon there, Dr. Lillehei, um asked our founder, Earl Bakken, to develop a wearable battery-powered pacemaker so this would not happen again. And so he did that in the mid-50s, and, and uh, this later uh, led to the development of fully implantable systems, and I suppose you could say that the rest is history. Um, but uh, the, the basic model of um, you know working closely with highly specialized doctors on medical conditions, that really became the model for the company, and, and uh, over the 75 years, we've really focused on finding uh, novel technologies, and, and using our deep understanding of anatomy and physiology um, to the development of devices for over 70 conditions. And uh, actually today in the company, uh, we treat two patients every two seconds. And, and uh, so uh, there are many, many areas that, that we're, uh, we're involved in. And as you said, we're known for pacemakers, but we also make insulin pumps uh, we're very involved in all kinds of surgery, um, including, you know, all kinds of general surgery, spine surgery, thoracic surgery, you know, really every kind of surgery. Um, and, uh, but recently, uh, what's really been exciting is uh, we're finding ways to do surgery through very small incisions, which uh, allows, uh, you know, a, a much smaller uh, wound less infection, less blood loss, quicker recovery, uh, less use of hospital resources. And uh, so that's a, that's a very exciting development. And a good example would be, you know, heart valves that used to involve open chest surgery uh, now can be uh, actually inserted through a very small incision actually in the leg. And, uh, you know, a catheter can thread up uh, through the aorta and implant a valve in the heart that is highly effective and the patient can go home, if not the same day, then maybe the next day and, and uh, have almost immediate uh, recovery. Also, I would, I would mention that uh, we've partnered a lot uh, with folks in Canada. Um, we acquired a company called CryoCath in Montreal, uh, which um, used cold power to uh, treat uh, atrial fibrillation. And that's become a world product for us. And so we have a large manufacturing facility there on the West Island. But also, uh, you know, we've, we've partnered with uh, other Canadian firms uh, to sort of fill uh, holes in our product line or where we can work together in a productive way. And some good examples are uh, DX out of Kitchener-Waterloo, who make uh, remote uh, physiologic sensors. And uh, we've worked with a company called uh, Nutopia that's involved in uh, diabetes prevention. So we're, you know, we're constantly on the outlook for, for talent and partners that we can work with. And, and uh, Canada's got many, many um, small, medium enterprise companies that uh, fill the bill.
1: Neil, I want to ask you a question about your role as a Canadian president of a major global firm. Um, you know, part of your job, ostensibly, is making the case um, within the company uh, for investment or product mandates in Canada. In these activities, what do you view as the strengths of Canada that you can accentuate? And what are the weaknesses for the Canadian market that represent, in your mind, a vulnerability uh, for your efforts to try to encourage Medtronic to invest more and expand its capacity uh, within the country?
2: Well, uh, first, I I, want to just clarify one point is that I I would uh, classify myself as an influencer rather than a decision maker as it relates to those kinds of um, uh, product line investments, um, because we work with uh, 20 uh, global operating units that have specific uh, mandates in different areas. And so I would partner with them on any opportunity that I discovered uh, in Canada. But, uh, you know, to talk about um, strengths and weaknesses, uh, you know, Canada is very strong in medical research. Um, you know, the University of Toronto, I, I believe, is number two among global uh, universities uh, for, for medical citations, which is an indicator of the, the amount of research uh, that's going on. And so I, I would say Canada's really quite strong for, for a smaller country uh, in this area of, of research where we're weak is that we, I I think we can start up, but we're weak at scaling up. And what you tend to see is a lot of early exits or, uh, you know, people move, uh, their, their operation, uh, you know, offshore, you know, to the U S or elsewhere, uh, when it's time to expand. So I I think, you know, the weakness is, is just in that whole, um, uh, you know, scaling up to a global operation. Uh, you don't really see very many examples in our field of that occurring. <clears throat> you know, we regularly work with uh, physician inventors who, who have, uh, you know, world-class ideas. And if they're not sort of trying to uh, create their own companies, then we can help them uh, to achieve, uh, you know, global impact. And, and uh, there's three examples uh, you know, I mentioned CryoCath earlier, which uh, came out of the University of Montreal, um, which, which is now a world product and, and doing extremely well. Um, we also uh, worked with a group at uh, uh, University of Western Ontario uh, on unexplained fainting. Uh, and uh, so we developed something called Link, which is a, a black box of fainting. So, the patient. Uh, if a patient has unexplained fainting, then the device is inserted into them, and it has a two to three year lifespan, uh, and uh, it can analyze any future events of unexplained fainting, and it can identify the root cause of that, and that could mean that they need a pacemaker or a defibrillator, or it could mean that it's that it's of neurologic uh, origin. Um, in which case, there's other things that, that could be done, and then the third example um, came out of uh, University of Toronto uh, Sunnybrook Hospital, uh, which is a product we call OsteoCool, which basically ablates uh, spinal tumors and uh, you know can allow patient greater comfort and greater you know better recovery than current alternatives uh, for that problem.
1: Neil, we'll come to some public policy issues um, later in our conversation. But if I may just pick up the points you made about the tendency of promising Canadian startups to either sell out to um, larger firms or for the founder or founders to relocate to larger markets. Do you have any views on what may be behind that tendency? and, And what, if anything, Policymakers ought to be focusing on to encourage those promising firms to stay and grow and scale within Canada.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've actually studied this. Um, I, you know, I worked with uh, David Naylor um, in uh, 2015. We came out with a federal uh, recommendation report on the subject, and and uh, I think that that the challenge we have is the uh, host market, the Canadian healthcare market. It is not a really a great market for innovative new products. It's very slow uh, at adopting them. Um, and so it doesn't really support entrepreneurs very well. Um, other markets like uh, you know, the UK or Denmark uh, and, and certainly the US, they, they have a much uh, more robust appetite for new innovations that can improve uh, patient outcomes. And they don't have the barriers that we have, whether it's, uh, you know, slow uh, medical fee changes, um, you know, procurement that's not really looking for uh, innovative solutions. They're just looking, you know, primarily to find things at a lower cost. And, and also our healthcare care uh, reimbursement of hospitals doesn't really have an innovation budget per se. So kind of the same thing, keep doing what you're doing will give you uh, you know, inflation, and that's it. Um, and it, it doesn't really allow for investment in new technology. You've
1: described those mix of incentives and public policies as a, quote, provider-centric healthcare system that, um, as you say, doesn't incentivize the adoption of new and different technologies. May I just ask you to elaborate a bit on what you mean by provider-centric healthcare system? And why why is it that, you know, as you say, these promising medtech firms seem to have more success finding adoption in international healthcare systems rather than our, our own here in Canada?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think the term that we've used a lot is rigidity. Um, you know, the, the way that we fund all these different streams, whether it's, you know, fund healthcare professionals, fund hospitals, fund uh, departments within hospitals... It's broadly referred to as silo funding. So, um, you know, they're, they're given so much every year. Uh, they may be given inflation, uh, but they're, they're not really encouraged uh, either to find efficiencies or to find different ways of doing things. And often, like, just for an example, um, if, if I had a more expensive product, um, you know, that an operating room would purchase. But it would save hospital stay or stay uh, save uh, intensive care stay. Um, there's no real incentive for the operating folks to give up the budget and say, "Oh, here you go." Uh, you know, I, actually, I I suppose I got that backwards. But for the critical care people to say, "Here's more money to spend in the operating room," because it's their budget and and uh, you know they're going to defend that you know to the death. Uh, We often say that there's no constant currency, so the money doesn't translate from one budget to another the way it should to optimize innovation.
1: Which, of course, begs the question, what should federal or provincial policy be doing to encourage the adoption and scaling of new technologies to improve the efficiency of the system and, and, and better patient outcomes? How, in other words, can public policy push back against the incentives that you've just outlined?
2: Well, I, I think that comes back to the the uh, patient centric uh, approach. Is is that really the budget needs to be uh, based on the patient's condition and and uh, you know the optimal um, care pathway for that patient? And so, therefore, it it you know it doesn't really matter um, who's involved and what they buy. It, it's it's about what's the most efficient way of treating a patient, and and we're seeing that. You know, in in other healthcare systems, I mean, I mean, part of it is perhaps it's the discipline of insurance, right? Because if you have an insured system, then there is sort of a pool of money per patient, um, and and there, you know, there is an incentive to optimize um, their care within that. You see that in the Dutch system very strongly, um, whereas in our system, although we're insured, it's kind of insured in a big pool, but the money uh, is allocated into the provider groups every year Um, it doesn't follow the patient
1: to to what extent neil is the challenge that our decentralized form of medical procurement means that everyone is focused on costs as you say and no one in the system has an interest or a focus on experimenting with higher cost yet higher reward technologies Um, and if so how can we change that
2: well well first of all um I don't see it as decentralized. I, you know, there's different levels of decentralization, but um, you know, the, the, um, the budgets that we deal with are largely at the provincial level and uh, you know what, uh, if it was truly decentralized, it would be at the patient level, but I'm even just saying at the hospital level would be, would be uh, better because the hospital has, you know, unique challenges with staffing and, and, uh, with delivering programs, and uh, you know, so if if it was decentralized at that level, then they could optimize, um, you know, the care that they deliver at the hospital. But because it's at the provincial level, um, you know, the, the no two hospitals are dealing with the same financial problems, are dealing with the same staffing problems, and and uh, so therefore, you know, they're not able to um, invest. Uh, for themselves in, in, in the best solutions.
1: Neil, listeners will know about the healthcare human resource challenges that we're already facing and are bound to face more and more as the population ages and healthcare demands grow. How much is MedTech a substitute for labor? In other words, to what extent can medical technologies help Canada cope with its labor shortages in the healthcare system?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it because it's not it's not truly a substitute for labor, uh, but it can sort of um, offset some of the labor uh, costs. And, uh, you know, one of the examples I gave you earlier about the heart valve, you know, if um, if technology can reduce um, the hospital stay uh, by doing something uh, minimally invasive, then that is reducing uh, health human resource costs in the in the uh, in the wards and in the recovery, but also um, a very new development is the use of uh, robots to assist uh, surgery, and they can, you know, literally be like another pair of hands in the operating room. And uh, so that that uh, that would be another way of defraying um, shortages in staff in the operating room, uh, you know, with technology.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: Let me ask one final public policy question, and then I want to move to the future where you have so much interesting um, ideas and, and thoughts. You've been deeply involved in the public policy process. Um, you've participated, for instance, in sectoral discussions uh, with the federal government. You mentioned earlier your association with the 2015 um, Health Innovation Report. At this stage, you know, what's your sense, Neil? Do, do, do you think that policymakers are understanding the extent to which um, this provider-oriented or centric system, as you've called it, is standing in the way of uh, reaping these benefits of uh, greater ad- adoption? of um, new and emerging medical technologies. I guess, in other words, is there reason to think that the types of structural changes that we've been talking about today may be on the horizon?
2: Well, certainly, um, when you do sort of um, health system comparisons, um, you you know, you can find examples of of countries that are further down that journey, um, uh, and and, uh, National Health Service in the UK is a good example. Actually, um, many uh, European jurisdictions, I, I know um, it wasn't totally a uh, home run, but Obamacare was an example of an initiative, um, you know, designed to sort of reform healthcare to make it accessible to all uh, and to do it very efficiently. So those the international comparisons are there. We also have international surveys that look at specific metrics. Um, that also show that Canada is not doing as well as its comparators, and and those would include the Commonwealth F- Fund survey out of New York and the OECD, and there are other surveys done by different groups, whether you know World Economic Forum or World Bank, um, that that are providing these kind of metrics. It's it's just that within Canada, there's not a really a lot of discussion about these comparisons. I know we're all very proud of the, the fairness of the Canadian system, uh, that, that it's um, theoretically available, equally available to all. Um, and, and, you know, that, that is the ethic of the system. But, um, uh, you know, challenging the actual performance, I think you have to accept that it's not a short-term uh, situation. It's a long-term journey. And uh, you know we've listened over the years as you know the National Health Service has gone through this, and you know sometimes you hear oh that National Health Service is terrible and this sort of thing. It's it you know they've kind of found a bump in the road to healthcare reform, but but they're continually innovating and improving, uh, whereas we remain rigid in Canada. So I, I think that what we need is. Um, you know, uh, actually, political leaders with the courage uh, and the stamina uh, to see something like this through, and and again, you know, referring to the Obamacare situation, and and presidents are elected on four-year terms. You know, they they stuck with that actually, but it was terribly unpopular, uh, and and uh, it, it is actually continuing to grow and develop in the U.S. Believe it or not, um, after all the terribly negative press. So, I mean, change is difficult. It's difficult for all kinds of healthcare professionals, can be difficult for the public. But ultimately, if you keep the goal in in mind of what you're trying to do, which is to make it more patient-centric and and to improve productivity in doing that, um, then it's very, very worthwhile. So I would say that the pandemic, in many ways, has highlighted um, the shortcomings of the Canadian healthcare care system, um, and, uh, you know, we're very optimistic that this can play a role um, in the direction of healthcare reform in Canada, but we just need to see people that are willing to pick this up and run with it.
1: Yeah, well said. You know, one, one wonders if, in this case, the the public may be ahead of the political class, that there may be... Um, more support for the types of structural reforms that we've been talking about on this episode and in previous ones um, than a lot of political strategists and consultants and, and ultimately politicians understand. P- part of that public mood is reflected by the profound benefits of medical technology that we've witnessed in the past two years in the form of the MNRA vaccines. Uh, one gets the sense that we're in a bit of a moment where the public would indeed support new investments and policy changes to catalyze the creation and adoption of, of new technologies. Why don't you paint a picture of the future for our listeners? What are the possibilities in terms of technology adoption, driving better patient outcomes? What areas of medtech, Neil, are you, are you most excited about?
2: Well, I, I'm going to go back to the pandemic first and and just uh, provide one of the examples that I was referring to. Uh, the the um, Technologies for remote patient management have been around, you know, for, for a very long time, if you want to include the telephone in that. More recently, Zoom, and, and of course, you know, the, the potential for remote physiologic uh, monitoring of patients' conditions, which is uh, much more recent, uh, which, for example, uh, Cloud DX I mentioned earlier, they are a leader in uh, remote uh, patient uh, monitoring. So, during the pandemic, virtual care went from single-digit percentages to ninety percent. Uh, you know, because of patients didn't want to go in to see a doctor, doctors didn't want to see patients just because of the risk of, of uh, COVID. And uh, you know, this had been held back for many many years because of concerns about overbilling uh, and, and concerns. Uh, you know, that patients wouldn't like it and this sort of thing. But all those concerns were completely, uh, blown up, uh, during the, the pandemic. Patients loved, uh, getting, uh, remote care. Uh, it saved them driving downtown and parking and paying too much <laughs> just <laughs> to be in a hospital parking lot or whatever. And, and providers, uh, found they could, they could see a lot of patients and, and, uh, Provide a good level of care. Certainly not a panacea, because it, you, you know you can't completely replace the in-person visit. Of course, but there are many, many things that you can do remotely, um, and uh, so we've learned that. Uh, you know, so that that would be an example, and that that actually is is coming true. I I, I don't think we're ever going back. I think that uh, uh, you know th- that will be uh, part of. Uh, the armamentarium of of the medical system uh, uh, going forward is that if you can do it remotely, let's do it remotely, uh, and and save everybody the time and and uh, energy. But you know, broadening it, um, you know, I, I think that we we've talked about getting patient centric. So, I, you know, I would see uh, in in the future um, that we would have a healthcare system that was really uh, intensely focused on the patients and their outcomes and their journey, both both in terms of, uh, you know, prior to engaging the system to sort of qualify where do they need to uh, engage the system, what can they do to educate themselves and prepare themselves for it. You know, having a very quick engagement with the healthcare system, um, you know, not involving a long hospital stay or anything like this, you know, and then, uh, you know, going home, but staying connected so that if there are any symptoms that, that emerge, that you can manage them efficiently, um, you know, so that they don't come back unnecessarily to the emergency department if it's something that could be managed at home, this sort of thing. So, so that that would be the first thing is is let's get the patient at the center of the system. I also think that um, data is you know implicit in all of this is that um, you know patient records need to you know attach to patients and follow them wherever they engage with the healthcare system, so that the healthcare providers um, can be duly informed and don't have to repeatedly. Ask all the same typical questions that you get when you go to a doctor's office or hospital, but even more importantly, that they can see the history of the patient, what kind of conditions that they have or have had, uh, you know, um, what kind of restrictions they may have, um, you know, so that they can be very thoughtful, um, you know, in how they provide care, and and I think also that um, patients have a terrible time getting access to their own records. Uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, in, in law, uh, you know, patients do own their own data. But, uh, you know, to actually get access to that data uh, can be very, very difficult. And I think the more that patients have access to their own data, um, the more that they can make informed choices as well, educate themselves, uh, you know, be be informed about what options of treatment they might have, uh, you know, and, and uh, really be uh, you know, a, a true participant in their own care. So I think that's very important, and I think that leads to improved productivity. By the way, patients don't want to unnecessarily waste resources either. They're all taxpayers, um, and uh, you know they're they're um, all very very thoughtful about what they want uh, in their own care. Um, the other thing that we talked about is just about innovation, and, and uh, you know there there really is a challenge. Uh, in getting, and I'm talking about the Canadian healthcare system specifically, there's really a challenge, uh, except when you have a pandemic on, of getting uh, innovative new products, technologies, processes into the healthcare system because of all these rigidities, uh, these silo uh, budgets, um, and and perhaps silo thinking uh, in the way processes and technologies are implemented in the system. So I, I would I would like to see in the future that that things when they have sufficient evidence that uh, justifies the the expense uh, and and involving patients that they could be immediately applied and instead of have such tremendous uh, lag time um, and then uh, you know we talked about health human resources uh, you know we really need to um, take uh, heed of, of all these things we're hearing. There's tremendous burden on health human resources at all levels, You know whether it's the physicians or, or the administrators, the nurses, everybody that's, that's involved. Um, and and uh, so I, I think one of the things that's very, very promising in this regard is artificial intelligence. So if you have this data that follows the patient You can also pool this data uh, with patients with similar conditions. You you know, you could do this locally. You could do this nationally. Um, There's even groups now doing this globally so that you can make the best, uh, you know, decision with the patient about the course of treatment uh, and and, uh, what are the various options and and where is the best place to get that treatment. So I think artificial intelligence can play a tremendous role tremendous role in the future of of delivering optimal care for patients.
1: That's a very compelling picture of the future, Neil. It seems to me it's precisely the kind of picture that policymakers will need to lean on to secure the kind of political capital um, to make some of the changes that we've been talking about. Let me wrap up with uh, something of a personal question. in addition to being the Canadian president of Medtronic, you're also uh, an enterprising podcast host yourself. Uh, for the past year or so, you've hosted your own podcast called "The Next 100." What's the basic thesis or purpose of the podcast? Why did you decide to launch it, and you know how are you enjoying it?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, the The uh, podcast is called "The Next 100," as you know, and that that was inspired by um, the discovery of insulin, which happened. I guess it's going on 101 years ago now um, in uh, in Toronto. And, uh, you know, we, d- we didn't want this milestone to pass without, uh, you know, reflecting on what we've learned and, and thinking about what, uh, what the future holds. Um, so we, uh, we saw it as an opportunity to kind of highlight innovators uh, in the Canadian healthcare system, and engage them on just like you did with me. Like, what does the future uh, have in store for us? And so, just you know, some of the, some of the things that we did. Um, we spoke with Robert Reed from Trillium Health Partners on on the concept of the medical home, and Ontario is experimenting with something called Ontario Health Teams, which is basically getting at the issue of primary care reform. Uh, The best healthcare systems in the world have very strong primary care, and the primary care uh, physician takes responsibility for helping the patient navigate the healthcare system. And so he had a lot to say about that. Uh, We also, just with respect to diabetes, um, Dr. Margaret Lawson from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario uh, and and one of her patients, David Timms, just reflected on the role that technology is playing in diabetes care, which is which is very very significant. The the idea that you you're continuously measuring blood sugar as a continuous variable and responding to it using technology for the infusion of insulin, uh, you know, to to prevent hypoglycemic events that could land a patient in emergency with a, or in a coma even. Uh, so that's that's been, that was a, a great one. Um, Zaina Kayat, who's a, a friend of mine, uh, you know, we've collaborated on a lot of things together. She's a futurist uh, and uh, is, is currently um, working at Teladoc uh, Canada, uh, basically on what we've discussed, which is the implementation of virtual care. We also uh, thought we should because we're talking about the next hundred years, that we should talk to some young uh, students who aspire to be innovators. So we work with Youth Science Canada and uh, Rennie Barlow, who's their executive director. And uh, it was just fascinating to hear the things that they were uh, they were engaged in, uh, things that they do at science fairs, but uh, even more seriously, what they want to do with their future um, in healthcare. We also. Um, I was very uh, inspired about Catherine Smart, who's the the current president of the CMA. She works as a pediatrician in rural Yukon and uh, just really inspired by the way that she uses all of the virtual care tools available to her. She brings together teams to do consults with her patients so that they don't have to travel to Vancouver or Edmonton to get care. She brings all the experts via video link uh, into the Yukon and uh, helps uh, her patients to get optimal care. Uh, Dr. Sasha Batia is um, uh, executive lead for Ontario Health, but also ran the Centre for Virtual Care at at Women's College. And so he's he's really a leading thinker on the potential for virtual care in patient-centric care. And uh, he had a colleague, Sonny Malhotra, who talked about automating uh, all of the things outside of care, but that surround the patient um, in, in terms of the physician office. Uh, and and uh, so that was a very interesting uh, discussion as well. So, we, you know, we covered a number of innovative topics that, that relate to the future of uh, healthcare in Canada and, and globally and uh, so um, it, was a, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I've, I've become a fan of podcasts.
1: Well, we're honored to have had uh, you, Neil Fraser, the Canadian president of Medtronic, on our podcast today. Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues to share your insights about Medtronic, the company, um, but also um, some of the, these deeper questions about the adoption of medical technology in Canada's healthcare system and ultimately improving patient outcomes
0: across the country. Thank you so much, Neil.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Sean, to meet you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by the Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.